Well, good morning, church. How is everyone doing today? Hey, that's good. Well, we are going to be continuing our New Year's series today, talking about our one message, one purpose, and our one response. And last week, John talked about the one message. And that message is to love God and to love people. And today, we're going to be talking about our one purpose. And that purpose is to go and make disciples. And the title of this message is called Game Plan. Because there's just something about having a game plan. Having an idea of what we should be doing, where we should be going, and what that actually looks like. That is just so reassuring to me. During my time in the Marine Corps, we, we would have plans upon plans. We would spend so much time planning. We would have plan A, B, C, D, and E. And if something goes wrong with plan A, you move to plan A part two. <laughs> but, but the thing was, we would almost never follow the actual plan. And I remember, I was, a, I was a young Marine, and I asked my platoon sergeant this question. I came to him and I said, why do we spend so much time planning when we never even actually follow the plan? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and he said, if we don't know what we're doing, the enemy sure isn't going to know what we're doing. <laughs> and... I thought that, that that's probably the best answer you could give to a question like that. Like, I can't think of a better answer. But there's just something about having a game plan that is so reassuring to me. An idea of what we should be doing, where we should be going, and what that actually looks like. And thankfully, Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, he gives us a game plan. And it is rightfully said that a dying man's words are among his most important. Now picture this. Jesus was dead for three days. And then he resurrected himself and came back and told his disciples something before he ascended into heaven. I, I think what he has to say is rather important. So you all with me? Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Will you all join me as we open up in prayer? Father, we, we thank you for this morning. And God, we thank you so much for your word. And I, I pray today, as we open up your word, and you allow me to speak about it, I pray you don't let me say anything you do not want me to say. And God, we invite your presence with us this morning. We pray you work on our hearts and change our lives. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this is the game plan. But I find it rather interesting. Jesus' opening words to his disciples, speaking post-resurrection. We find him in, in, in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came 
and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the opening line. But essentially, what is authority? I mean, authority essentially equals power. And Jesus is saying he has all of the power in heaven and on earth. You know, what is that thing that most people are just so afraid of? That thing that is going to get each and every one of us. That thing that we can feel so powerless over. That thing that most people just dread. Death. Because there's power in death. And Jesus is saying, I have all of the power. Power even over death. That's pretty evident in the resurrection. But I find this is interesting. This is Jesus' opening lines. And he's like establishing his power and his authority. Like no one's going to be able to top that. No one's going to be able to one-up Jesus here. It kind of reminds me of this comedian. And he used to do this bit talking about a dinner party. And at this dinner party, there's, there's this one guy. And he says, I just got done hiking the Grand Canyon. From rim to rim to rim. And there's another man in the room. And he says, that's pretty cool. You should come with me when I go hike Mount Everest again. And then there's another man in the room. And he comes up and he says, that's pretty cool. I remember when I walked on the moon. <laughs> like, he, he was an astronaut. And this whole bit is about these group of guys trying to one-up each other. And a lot of the times, I like to picture Jesus in that room. And he walks up and says, remember that time I died? <laughs> and then I resurrected myself? It's like, okay, no one's, no one's topping that. No one's going to be able to one-up Jesus here. Because in reality, Jesus has all the power. He can send who he wants, where he wants, when he wants. Jesus has all the power. But for, for a lot of us, that can feel kind of uneasy. Because, you know, we want the power. We want the authority. And, and there's a man, his name is Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a preacher in the 1800s. And Spurgeon struggled with depression his whole life and ended up working himself to death preaching the gospel. But this is what he says in regards to Jesus' power and his authority. He says, Power in the hands of some people is dangerous, but power in the hands of Christ is blessed. Oh, let him have all the power. Let him do what he wills with it. For he cannot will anything but that which is right, just, true, and good. We believe in this power, and we rest in it. We do not seek any other power. We defy every other power. And we know our powerlessness will not hinder the progress of his kingdom. We give all of our power to him. You know, Spurgeon knew something here. Power in the hands of Christ is blessed. Because it's the goodness of Christ. So power in his hands is actually a really good thing. But you know what's interesting about this verse? Jesus is reminding his disciples of his power before he issues an order. That's like a, an officer 
reminding a private of his rank before he issues an order. And Jesus is reminding us of this power before he says this. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This one line is the game plan. It is to go and make disciples. Our, our one purpose and, and the thing is, this command to, to go and proclaim the gospel, this command to go and make disciples, it is found in every single gospel. I know John likes to make a habit up here of playing Bible hopscotch. And I'm kind of disappointed he hasn't, doesn't, hasn't done it recently. So guess what we're doing today? Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I took that verse a little too seriously when I was a young youth pastor. In San Diego, there was a field next to my house, and it had a bunch of cows in there. And I used to go out there and stand on this tree stump and practice my sermons to the cows. <laughs> they are probably some of the most evangelized cows in the world. <laughs> like, if they're not saved, I don't know what creature is. But in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And finally, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This command to go and proclaim the gospel, the command to go and make disciples. It's in every single gospel. But the thing is, for a lot of us, this command can feel like a monumentous task. And we can feel so unqualified to actually carry this out. We can feel so unqualified to actually go and proclaim the gospel. We can feel so unqualified to actually go and make disciples. But I think it's really important to take a look at who Jesus is actually speaking to here. Like he's speaking to his disciples, some Hebrew school dropouts. But like seriously, that's what they are, Hebrew school dropouts. So the, the Hebrew education system revolved around the Torah. And every single Hebrew child at about age six would go to Hebrew school. It was something called Beit Safar. And in Beit Safar, they'd be there from about age 6 till about age 10. And they would learn the Torah. And most of these Hebrew children, by the end of Beit Safar, about age 10, most of these Hebrew children would have the Torah memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Almost memorized. And, and most of these Hebrew children, after Beit Safar, they would stop their education there. And they would go and they would learn the trades of their fathers. Whether that was a fisherman or a carpenter, they'd go learn how to run a household. But only the best of the best would continue their education into something called Beit Talmud. And in Beit Talmud, they would be there from about age 10 till about age 14, 15. And most of these Hebrew boys, by age 15, at the end of Beit Talmud, 
most of these Hebrew boys would have the Old Testament almost memorized. Like Genesis to Malachi. Almost memorized. And after Beit Talmud, most of these Hebrew boys would stop their education there. And they would go and they would learn the trades of their fathers. But only the best of the best of the best would continue their education into something called Beit Midrash. And, and in Beit Midrash is where they would begin to disciple with a rabbi. But before they were able to disciple with a rabbi, they must first apply to that rabbi. So this, this young Hebrew boy, about age 15, would come up to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to be one of your disciples. And when we use the word disciple, we generally mean student. But when they use the word disciple, they mean, I want to go where you go. I want to do what you do. I want to be like you. They would say, essentially, I want to take your yoke. And a rabbi's yoke was his interpretation of scripture. And each rabbi's followed a certain set of interpretations. So, that, so this Hebrew boy would come up to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. And at this point, the rabbi would just grill him. He'd be asking him questions about Torah, about the Old Testament, about the prophets, about the oral tradition. And this could sometimes last for days of this rabbi just grilling this poor kid. And, it, and if the rabbi thought that, you know, this kid loves God, he knows his Torah, but he's just not the best of the best, then the rabbi would say, go and learn the trades of your fathers. I mean, essentially, you didn't make the cut. And very rarely, but if the rabbi thought that this kid could sit in front of him and learn what he knows and essentially do what he does and could take and spread his yoke and this kid was the best of the best, then the rabbi would say, follow me. So now, now we come to Jesus. And Jesus is this great rabbi, yet we look at among his first disciples. Jesus was walking on the shore of Galilee and he sees Peter and Andrew fishing. But if they're fishing, it means they're not following a rabbi. If they're fishing, it means they didn't make the cut. It means they're the, the not good enoughs. Yet Jesus says, follow me. And they dropped what they're doing and went. I, I always thought that was so weird as you go through that part in the Bible. Like some random guys walking on the shore of Galilee, yelling to a couple guys fishing, saying, hey, follow me. And they just kind of drop what they're doing and go. But knowing the culture, it is such an incredible honor to follow a rabbi. Rabbis were some of the most esteemed, revered, and respected members of their community. And, and the thing is, these disciples, they lived their whole lives knowing that they were the not good enoughs when it came to Torah. They lived their whole lives knowing that they were the not good enoughs when it came to the scripture. Yet Jesus says, follow me. And we come to the next disciples, James and John, fishing with their father Zebedee. But once again, if they're fishing, it means they didn't make the cut either. I mean, and they're fishing with their father. They're apprenticing with their dad. Like, they don't even know their family trade yet. Yet Jesus says, follow me. Because you see, Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. 
I think that's, you know, this, honestly, this was something I struggled with. When I was in Bible college, my degree's in business. I wanted to learn the business end of church. I wanted to be the jhana of the church. And about halfway through, God put this overwhelming call in my life to be a pastor. And at first, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not some preacher. I'm not this shepherd. I'm not this, you know, like, counselor. Like, that's pastor stuff. That's not me. Like, I felt so unqualified to actually do that. And it was something that God worked with me on for a little bit, showing me that he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I think that's pretty evident with who Jesus actually called. I mean, if we look at at among the, the first disciples that Jesus actually sent out, we got Peter, the rash and the strong headed. The same Peter who denied Jesus three times. The, the, the same Peter who denied Jesus to even a little girl. We got John, who, who sometimes wishes to call fire down onto men. We got Philip, who was with Jesus for so long yet still didn't even really know who Jesus was. We got Thomas. Who, who didn't believe Jesus rose again from the dead until he put his finger in his hand. Like, we got the B team here. This is, this is the JV. Like, these are the, the not good enoughs. Yet these disciples changed the world. I mean, even in Acts chapter 4, they're speaking, and the Jews are like, wait, aren't they just uneducated fishermen? Man. Because Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And, and each and every one of us in here, we all have a calling. Now, each of our callings are going to look a little different, but they really all amount to the same thing. Love God, love people, make disciples. And you know that there's a difference between a career and a calling, right? A career is something that you do to make money, whereas a calling is what you were made to do. And sometimes they're, they're intermixed. You know, you're not just a nurse. You are God's representative in the medical field. You're not just a carpenter. You're God's representative on the job site. You're not just a teacher. You're God's representative in the education system. You are God's representative wherever you are. Look at, look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. He says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, a lot of people will read this, and they'll see the ending of verse 14, where it says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And they'll be like, all right, stop right there. Like, that, that's a you job. That's a John job. That's the elder's job. Like, I'm not a preacher. But the word to preach simply means to proclaim. You are a preacher of the gospel. You are a proclaimer of this message. You are God's representative. Wherever you are. You know, the way I view evangelism, it is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. You know, and if we, if we believe, we truly believe 
that we have found the key to eternal life in Christ Jesus, why in the world would we ever keep that to ourselves? Why wouldn't we show everyone where the bread is? Last week, John was speaking on our one message, and that is to love God and to love people. If you truly love someone, what is the most loving thing that you can do for them? Present them with the gospel. Show them who Jesus truly is. And, you know, during my, my ministry in the Marine Corps, I've seen a lot of people come to know Christ, and I've had the privilege of mentoring a lot of young Marines. But one of the questions that I would get asked the most is, okay, if I'm, if I'm qualified to go and make disciples, if, if I am a preacher of the gospel, if I am God's representative wherever I am, how then do I become more confident at witnessing to people? How do I become bolder with my faith? How do I become bolder at presenting the gospel to people? And there's a lot of books, seminars. I mean, you could probably find a YouTube video on it by now. You know, I used to think, I used to think that if I had my apologetics sharpened and so fine-tuned, that if I, I knew the ins and outs of this Bible and I could talk about prophecies written 800 years before Jesus, talking about Jesus and just lining everything up, putting the ball in the tee and swinging, if I thought I could, if I could defend this Bible with everything I got, then I would become more confident at witnessing to people. But you know, I don't think that's it. I think the greatest way to become more confident and bold at presenting the gospel to people is by having an authentic relationship with Jesus. Because when Jesus is at the forefront of your life, he is in, through, and throughout every aspect of your life, it gets pretty easy to talk about him. Because he's so there. He's so prevalent within your life. It's when Jesus is on the peripheral is when those conversations get a little awkward. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus the steering wheel in your life? Or is he the spare tire? Is Jesus the one that is guiding every aspect of your life, every move you make, every step you take? Or is he the spare tire? The one that we call on when things in our life get a little bumpy. Or when things you know, don't go according to plan. Is Jesus the steering wheel? Or is he the spare tire? And Jesus continues in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20, talking about these new disciples. He says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Notice here how it says, teaching them. And in the verse previous, it says, go and make disciples. Jesus is showing us that disciples are made and grown. It is past something just the point of conversion. So, so then how do we, as, as FBC Salinas, as a group of Christians who meet on the corner of San Vicente and Blanco, how do we effectively make and teach disciples? That's a question you guys can talk about in your life groups this week. Is how do we, a ragtag group of Christians, effectively make and teach disciples? Because I think before we're effective out there, we need to first be effective in here. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus is praying. 
and he's, and he's praying for his disciples. And this is, this is what he says in verse 19. He says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. So Jesus is, is praying here, and he's praying for his disciples, but not just his disciples, he's praying for his disciples' disciples, or anyone who believes in him through their word. So us. And Jesus is praying that they are one so that the world may believe. And I wrestled with this verse. Because I understand the benefits of unity, but is that really the key ingredient? But then again, did Israel really think walking around the walls of Jericho seven times and blowing a horn was going to make them fall? But those walls came crumbling down. And I think it comes down to to really, really believe this book. Because what Jesus is saying here, he's saying if we in here can work out our stuff, if we can knock down the silos that we have erected, if we can become unified as a church, it's going to have a really big impact outside. But in reality, we can, we can talk about unity all day. It doesn't necessarily make us unified. The thing that makes us unified is when we have a common purpose a common goal, a common game plan. When we truly believe that our purpose in life and as a church is to go and make disciples, that is how to strengthen unity. And Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe are among his most powerful. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Such beautiful words. You know, Jesus is reminding us that we're not alone here. You're not by yourself when you're out there making disciples. You're not by yourself when you're out there witnessing. Jesus is saying he's going to be with us every step of the way, and his strength is the only strength we need to lean on as we go and we make disciples. And as we're, as we're closing, I, I want to invite the worship team up here. And as you go through your Bible, and you look at almost every Bible hero at some point in their life God came to them and told them to go and they said yes you know Abram before he was Abraham God came to Abram and told him to go and Abram said yes and he went on to become the great patriarch of the faith Moses a shepherd the Lord came to Moses and told him to go and Moses said yes. And he went to rescue Israel. Hosea, a prophet. The Lord came to Hosea and told him to go. And Hosea said yes. And he went and rescued his wife, demonstrating the love of God towards humanity. And here, Jesus is coming to us and saying, go. Go and make disciples. What is our response going to be? Will you join me as we close in prayer? Father, we, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you so much for your word and the game plan that you give us. God, I pray this purpose stays at the front of our minds. 
I pray you strengthen us as we go and we make disciples. God, I pray you show us that we are qualified to carry this out and that you are with us every step of the way. God, I pray you strengthen and unify the church so that the world may believe. Father, I thank you for what you do for us today, tomorrow, every day. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.